All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Hey, hey, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, with a public service announcement. Just remember, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off that old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Sid. Okay, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast, and we have got a great episode for you this week, because this week we're talking with my good friend Pat Nye, the walleye guy. Pat is the president of the Future Angler Foundation and the president of the National Professional Professional Anglers Association. Hey, and Pat is not only one of the most knowledgeable anglers out there, he is also one of the most outspoken advocates of recreational angling I have ever met. And after we talk with Pat today, I'll be taking a look at my top 10 inshore poppers, and I'll be pouring that great American whiskey tent and cup. Hey, you know, I started the episode just a few seconds ago with those great lyrics from one of the great American songwriters, Mr. Jim Croce, who we tragically lost in a plane crash in 1973 when Croce was only 30. Now, despite his rising popularity back in the late 60s and early 70s, Croce only saw one of his singles reach number one on the charts. And yes, you guessed it. It wasn't You Don't Mess Around With Jim, as I quoted from. It was Bad Bad Leroy Brown. So why do I bring up Croce and Leroy Brown today on the Rodcast? Because there is a great fishing story tied to Leroy Brown and to recreational fishing. You see, there's this memorial in the town of Eufaula, Alabama, to the greatest bass to ever live. A bass that was given the name Leroy Brown by Bass Hall of Fame and Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame member Tom Mann. Now, you probably know the name Tom Mann from his company, Mann's Bait Company, one of the most iconic lure manufacturers in the fishing industry. And without ever having taken a single course in electronics, Mann also began experimenting with fish-finding technology, ultimately developing and patenting the Humminbird Depth Finder, another iconic contribution to recreational fishing. When Tom Mann passed away in 2005, BASS founder Ray Scott called Mann one of the most savvy tackle manufacturers I ever met. He was one of the originators of field testing and was highly generous with other fishermen. Now, there's no question that Scott would sing the accolades of Mann because Mann had always supported, been a supporter of BASS. He even fished the first ever BASS event that Ray Scott held in 1967 in Arkansas. Scott once said that, and this is a quote from Ray Scott, that, quote, Tom was the second man to send me the $100 entry fee for the Beaver Lake tournament that started it all. Well, back in 1973, coincidentally the same year that Croce passed away, Tom Mann was fishing on Lake Eufaula, working his patented strawberry jelly worm, a lure, by the way, that would become the number one selling plastic worm of all time. And he's out there fishing, and he hooks a bass of about a pound, a pound. So nothing spectacular, a really small bass, that is. Well, man felt some connection with this bass, and he took him home and put him in a tank he kept. Well, when that tiny bass entered his new home, the tank had several other occupants, other bigger fish who had been there for a while, that is. 
Well, man decided to name the little fish Leroy Brown in honor of the Croce song. And sure enough, bad, bad Leroy Brown, the bass, took to the name and became the baddest ass fish in the tank, not taking guff off of any of the other big fish. Man eventually had to move Leroy from his home tank to the 38,000-gallon aquarium at Tom Mann's Fish World, Mann's bait shop near Lake Walter, uh, Walter F. George, just outside Eufaula, a lake known as the bass fishing capital of the world, and Leroy became a local celebrity in Eufaula, a town that knows its bass. In fact, over the years, newspapers from around the world were writing stories about Leroy Brown, the baddest bass in the whole damn town. Unfortunately, Leroy died in 1980, and Mann decided to honor his longtime guild friend with an appropriate funeral. In fact, Leroy's fame was so widespread by then that the governor of Alabama at the time, Fob James, in Birmingham they loved the governor, boo-hoo-hoo, now we all did what we could do. Well, Fob James declared a day of mourning for Leroy. And Mann received telegrams from a whole bunch of country music celebrities, including Hank Williams Jr., Porter Wagoner, and a whole bunch of others. And at the memorial itself, hundreds of people showed up, and they all walked past a velvet-lined Plano tackle box coffin, and each dropped in a jelly worm into the box while the Eufaula High School band played Bad Bad Leroy Brown. But here's the thing. The day of the memorial, the ground was too wet to bury Leroy in his coffin. So man put the coffin in the freezer to store him until he could bury him. And someone stole the coffin and Leroy's body. The grieving Tom man was really upset and he offered a $10,000 reward for the return of Leroy. But the thief was never caught. Leroy, though, was found over 800 miles away in the Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the airport when a baggage handler reported a box with a foul smell being loaded onto a plane. So Leroy was eventually buried in Eufaula, and there's a big old marble memorial stone in downtown Eufaula that man ordered from Germany and paid four grand for. And the memorial reads, most bass are just fish, but Leroy Brown was something special. Oh, man, how I love that story. It's got Jim Croce, Tom Mann, BASS events, strawberry jelly worms, and a velvet-lined Plano tackle box. That's freaking Elvis caliber gear right there. And you know, now that I think about it, I want to be buried in a velvet-lined Plano tackle box. Hey, Gary Lemke at Plano, can you make that happen? And yes, it's got a legendary bass, Bad Bad Leroy Brown. So here's to the memory of Leroy Brown the Bass and Jim Croce, whose passing may have prevented us from having to endure another Jim Croce song like Roller Derby Queen. Ugh. But that all leads us to a great Rodcast today. Hey, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And be sure to share the Rodcast with all of your angling and drinking buddies. Keep in mind, too, that if you have a comment about the show, you can always email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you have accessed the Rodcast if you have an opinion you'd like to deliver. All right, let's get casting. All right, I am uh, thrilled today to have a good friend and a hell of an advocate for recreational fishing in the inshore offshore digital studio today. 
He is president of the Future Angler Foundation, president of the National Professional Anglers Association, and former chairman of the board for the National Professional Anglers Association. He's the president of New Century Marketing, which is an outdoor industry consultant service, and he's worked in the outdoor industry for more than 40 years. He is a walleye pro with seven top finishes, top 10 finishes, and over $211,000 in winnings in the Major League Fishing Walleye Tour. He was inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame in 2018, noted not only for his professional championship fishing success, but as a, and I quote here, a linchpin in the sport fishing world. I've been fortunate to work with him on American Sport Fishing Association committees, and I'm grateful to call him a friend. That's right. On the show today, we have got Pat Nye, the walleye guy. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks, Sid. So, um, you and I've chatted a lot about uh, all kinds of things in angling over the years, but I want to start off talking about the National Professional Anglers Association. So why don't you tell the listening crew a little bit about that organization? And I'm particularly interested in hearing how you and the NPAA define what a professional angler is, because I think there are a lot of anglers out there that think about what does it mean to go pro? Sure, absolutely. And it's it's interesting you bring it up now because we're we're spending a great deal of time um, at the beginning of this year trying to let the world know and the industry know exactly what it is to be a professional angler. I, I think a lot of people have the misconception that the only professional anglers out there um, would be the tournament anglers that uh, fish bass at an upper level. You know, the Kevin Van Dams of the world, the Mike Iconellis, um, you know, Jacob Wheelers. Um, in, in reality, you know, there are a very, very large number of professional anglers in this country. And, you know, defining that, you know, exactly who is a professional angler is not the easiest thing to do, but it's not hard either. And it's pretty simple. Right? You know, quite frankly, anybody that has taken their passion for angling to the point where it becomes a business where they're earning income and they're paying taxes on that income um, is an angling professional. And, you know, you could also include a lot of the reps that are in this industry got into it because they love to fish. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, they're angling professionals as well because they know more about the sport and, and what makes it go um, than, than a lot of other people do. So, you know, great question. It, it's something that, that we, we try to educate people on every day. And again, it's pretty simple. You've, if you've taken that step from passion to profession where you're making income as an angler, guides, charter captains, angler educators, tournament anglers, promotional um, uh, anglers, you know, that, that do seminars and so forth, you're a professional. And uh, we estimate there's somewhere around 100 to 120,000 out there. And, you know, right now we have 1,400 members and we've got a long way to go to, to get where we need to be to get everybody under that umbrella. Excellent. You, you mentioned a word there twice that I wanted to ask you about. Um, because it's the word that gets used most when people, well, polite people, when they talk about you and fishing, and that's passionate. And when you were inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, you credited your father and your grandfather for instilling that passion. 
And during that introduction, you were pretty adamant that passion has to get passed on. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that concept of passion and how we pass it on. Absolutely. I mean, your love for the outdoors and your love for angling is very apparent. I mean, you wear passion on your shoulder every day. Um, I do as well. And it's, it's, you know, anybody that knows me knows that I live to fish uh, and to be outdoors. Uh, and passing on that passion is not difficult. Um, you know, it's, it's been very refreshing to see, especially in the last year, um, actually going on two years now with, with the interest increasing in angling because of COVID. Um, and I think that a lot of the reason it has increased is people have shared their passion for angling with others. You know, so when we were going through that, that, that period of time when people were looking for something to do, I think what it gave them was time to, to go and kind of re reinstill this passion they had for being outdoors. I think a lot of people that had grown up angling and had really developed a passion for it, took the opportunity to go out and to, to re-engage with angling. Now we do with the future angler foundation, we do an awful lot of work in trying to instill passion into the, into the next generation of anglers, no matter what age they are. Um, you know, we, we utilize passionate, knowledgeable individuals who volunteer their time to go out and host events, angler education events that get people excited about angling. That passion that they have is passed on to all the people that, that they work with at, at the events that the Future Angler Foundation supports. And, you know, that's just one facet of what the Future Angler Foundation does to instill passion. But it's really important because I truly feel that for this sport to last for generations to come, that people need to share their love for the sport with others. Take someone fishing that you've never, you know, that's never experienced it before. And, and those that are the most knowledgeable, the ones that are the best anglers, really have the most responsibility to pass this on because they're going to be able to, to give an experience that, you know, who doesn't like to catch fish? You know, I've never found someone who doesn't like it. You know, it's the, the smiles on their faces, the laughter, the excitement, it, it's contagious and you know, that's the, that's the basis of this passion. You know, you mentioned something there um, about the increase in the number of anglers uh, during COVID. Uh, and, you know, for those of us who pay attention to how the industry works, not necessarily everybody out there listening who, you know, just wants to go fishing, you know, it's important to note that during that, particularly that first year of COVID, that nationwide, what was it? I think I'm not remembering the exact numbers, but over a million new anglers uh, purchased licenses over the prior year and got involved in the industry and got involved in the, in the recreation that had huge effect on the industry. You know, the availability of product. Um, it also changed how we educate about uh, angling. There's been a lot more content developed about introduction to fishing rather than the magazines sort of focusing on the expert views. 
So with the Future Angler Foundation, um, you've also been involved with uh, some, some, frankly, some Emmy award-winning video producers who have been focusing on video and education. I was wondering if you could talk about both from the perspective of the Future Angler Foundation and also from the perspective of what you just talked about, about needing to share that passion. Sure. How do we educate? How, what are the things that we do to get people to take up this, this sport? Well, it's, it's, been, it's been very exciting um, and interesting uh, over the past few years to see where we've come from a chance meeting with an individual by the name uh, of... Uh, Dan, uh, how can I forget Dan's name, Sid? Uh, I don't know, and I, I don't see his book on my shelf in front of yeah. me, so I can't remember either. <laughs> yeah, it's Dan, Bertal it's Dan Bertalan. That's a senior moment. Um, Dan Bertalan with Into the Outdoors Education Network and I met at Chance Meeting um, a few years ago, and it let, one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, um, after about four years, we've developed – um, it's by the end of this year, we'll have been 15 half and half hour television shows dedicated to exposing non-anglers and boaters to angling and boating. And it's been extremely exciting in that public television, PBS picked this, this series up. When they did that, it took the, the metrics from you know, about 5 million who were seeing it through the, the television, um, the, the traditional broadcast television, to um, this year, uh, we will have about 45 million people see this the series. And those are big numbers. The cool part is that it's PBS. These aren't people going to the, you know, to one of the angling networks to look for fishing shows. These are people who stumbled upon it and then have be become interested in angling. So, you know, I, I give I give Dan Bertalan and Into the Outdoors uh, Education Network, our partners, a uh, tremendous amount of, of kudos to having created educational angling, educational and boating educational information that PBS accepted. And that's that's really hard to do. I mean, it's it's difficult to get on PBS with anything, um, and that and then to have them request more and more content from us is is truly exciting. So you know that that's one of those those unintended consequences that occur when you take passion, you connect it and network it with the right people, and the next thing you know, we've created something that I, you know. I, it's never been duplicated to, to my knowledge with regard to those type of numbers, especially, you know, when we're not preaching to the choir, quote unquote, where we're talking to, you know, communicating with people outside the, the traditional fishing world. So, you know, th th that's really um, been, I guess, very gratifying, but we just scratched the surface and we're going to continue to work at that. And the industry is starting to understand exactly what this can do for the future of our sport. That's excellent. You know, one of the interesting things in what you're saying too is, you know, for hundreds of years, recreational fishing was 
passed down as a family education issue. You know, like you, like I said before, you've talked about your father and your grandfather instilling that passion in you. But given the kinds of work that you're doing now, both with um, that kind of uh, work on PBS, but also with Future Angler Foundation, now you're making this a public conversation, you know, that you can influence not just your son or your family or your daughter or whomever, but 43 million people. I mean, that's kind of a remarkable way to change how we teach about angling. And it, it is just beginning. Um, one of the things that has just happened is with these television shows that we've created, we've created curriculum that can be used in school systems across the country or by fishing clubs or you know anybody who wants to use it. Um, it's it's free source, but it's been kind of sitting there. It's been used some. Um, PBS Learning, which is is a network um, of information that is used by by school systems across the country to educate you know those in those school systems is picked up our. Um, into the outdoors, you know, getting families fishing content. And that will occur this year. That's going to take this and, and multiply the effects even to an even greater level. So it's, it's really exciting uh, to see where we've come and, and the opportunity that it is going to give the industry and the sport to be exposed to, you know, the next generation of anglers from all ethnic groups across all demographics in this in this country, um, a lot of which are inner city um, individuals that may not have even thought about fishing and now are going to be exposed to it in a manner where they're going to want to try it. Let's talk about that a little bit, because one of the things, you know, you got you started off as, if I remember correctly, a competitive angler back in the early 90s. Um, and you mentioned the high school programs. I mean, when we were you know, yep. back in the, the 80s and 90s, these programs didn't exist. And now competitive, particularly bass angling uh, for high school teams and college teams has become a big competitive sport. What what's the future there? I mean, that's that to me is really exciting stuff that, you know, we've, we're seeing kids like when we're at ICAST or the Miami Boat Show walking around instead of wearing basketball jerseys or football T-shirts, they're wearing their team fishing jerseys. Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's a heck of a new thing to for this to be so pervasive in the high school culture now you know in in i'm not i'm not going to uh to take credit for any of that but i can tell you that what we're doing with our getting families fishing initiative and the television shows uh, is targeted at increasing the participation in high school fishing um, because we're targeting middle middle school age kids who are going to going to be exposed to angling at the at the grassroots level, in we're already seeing anglers who were exposed to the program and are getting into high school and now want to participate in their clubs. And in some schools, you know, they these are team sports um, that are sanctioned by the school system. Um, and these kids are competing. Uh, on a nationwide basis, there's an there's an annual, um, a couple of different circuits now where there's there's an annual championship and there's there's college scholarships being awarded 
uh, a large number. I know the Bass Federation and Robert Cartledge has, has put together a program where just, a, and I don't know the number, but it's it's very, very large number um, as far as the dollar amount of the scholarships that are being awarded. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, this high school fishing is very excited, exciting as well and will grow. Um, it's it's going to be dependent upon the number of volunteers that are out there to go out and, you know, again, opinion leader volunteers, those better anglers that are, you know, able to go out there and, and help these, these programs in the school because, you know, the, the schools don't own boats. You know, these, these are all done by volunteers who are the boat captains uh, for these kids. And, um, you know, there's, there's a shortage of that. So, you know, if you have an interest, check with your local school system, see if they have a high school fishing team and if they need volunteer captains, because that's going to be the, the, the factor that limits the participation. Again, I go back to my comment about who doesn't like catching fish. And these, these kids, if it keeps them busy out in the outdoors versus getting in trouble doing something else or gives them a direction, you know, many of these high school kids will then go fish in college like my son did uh, and then eventually end up in the industry. And, you know, that that's something that is going to help our industry long term. Yeah, you mentioned your son, Adam, um, you know. He is uh, racking up a hell of a reputation on his own in the Bassmaster tournaments these days. I saw that he just opened this year's Bassmaster season uh, at Kissimmee with a fourth place finish. That's a heck of a way to to start a season. Yes, he did. He did start out strong again. Um, you know, he's he's one heck of an angler. Um, he's got uh, three top tens out of the past six events. He's got four money finishes out of the past six and. You know, he's he loves it. You know, he's a, he's an example of someone who you know, t- took that step from passion to profession. So he's he's fishing professionally, uh, winning money, paying taxes. That's that's great. He also works in the industry. You know, he works in retail sporting goods. And, you know, the 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 goal is to own the store that he works at in the near future. And, uh, you know, he's. He's in this industry for life. And it's a, you know, obviously I, I was able to introduce him to it, but you know, the, the passion that was instilled in him wasn't just from me. It was from, you know, lineage, you know, his grandpa and in myself, but also, you know, that he's, he just loves to fish. That's what he does when he's not fishing a tournament and he's not working at a, at a retail sporting goods store. He's out fishing for fun and in learning. And I tell you what, he's quite an angler. It's uh, it's amazing. It's fantastic. We'll keep an eye on him as he competes this season too. So let me shift the conversation a little bit. And let me admit that when I was uh, getting ready to talk with you today, I spent some time casting about in the freshwater fishing uh, hall of fame pages and I got to say, I was blown away by the list of anglers there. I mean, just quick scan, you know, the, since you're a walleye guy, you know, the lenders are all there. Nick Lyons, Larry Dahlberg, Ali Evanrood, Cotton Cordell, Bill Dance, Nick Cream, John Gerritz, James Hedden, Ernest Hemingway, Jimmy Houston, Carl Lawrence, Roland Martin, A.J. McLean, Johnny Morris, Ernest Fluger, our buddy Dave Precht, Mark Sosin, Kevin Van Dam, Ted Williams, Lee Wolf, Edzer. I mean, I can go on and on. Right. Um, and I love, I have to say, I actually love that they they include Dame Juliana Berners and Isaac Walton in there, right? You know, nice 
writers from the 1300s really writing about fishing. Um, that's a hell of an honor roll. And, you know, they let you in, but uh, <laughs> uh, how did that moment of induction feel? I mean, that moment of seeing your name with all of these just, I mean, really Hall of Fame anglers. It, it was one of those life moments that you don't forget. Um, you know, you work hard, you've got passion. Um, and again, it, it, it always goes back to passion. Every one of those people that you just mentioned has a passion for angling that took them, took them to the level that they achieved. And, you know, it's, it's an honor to be a member of the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Um, and it just makes me want to work that much harder to share the, you know, my passion for the sport and to, and to have it become what, you know, long-term, what we all want it to be, which is a continuing part of American culture. Because quite frankly, I mean, this, this country is pretty unique in the amount of people that fish, the access they have to unbelievable aquatic resources across this country. And, you know, it's either free or almost free in most cases. As you know, Europe isn't the same way, um, you know, to, to get to the really good fishing there. And there, you have to have, you know, it's more money because it takes, it takes money to access that. Um, so I just want to continue to have the United States be what it is, which is the center for sport fishing in the world, and, and to see the, the sport grow. Well, with that in mind, you and I over the years have talked a lot about what not only what does it take to grow the sport, but also the role that uh, conservation and you know even the role of your organizations and then other organizations that are trying to promote fishing. But you and I have also talked about the fact that there's so many disparate numbers of organizations trying to do all of these things and, you know, galvanize anglers or industry people trying to address common concerns or local anglers addressing local environmental issues. You know, what is it about angling that makes it so tough to get us all on the same page? You know, that there's so many multiple organizations. We're our own worst enemy, Sid. Um, you know, and it's something that really concerns me um, and quite frankly drives me nuts about this industry. We are all anglers, first and foremost. And, and at some point, this industry needs to step back and create an organization of anglers that drops geography, species, technique in in looks at angling as what you and I have talked about as, as a sport that is an amazing uh, way to, to spend time uh, with on a recreational basis and a sustenance basis um, and have us all come together under one umbrella. Look at where we would be in this country with angling if it were possible to bring everybody under one umbrella there, there is nothing out there you know so if you look at the hunting side they've got the nra okay because of the firearms and we've got the we've got the second amendment that has created the real reason for the existence of the national rifle association we don't have that catalyst 
in fishing like the NRA, like hunting side does with NRA to create this umbrella organization. And even the NRA isn't all inclusive. I mean, there are people that that support it and because of the Second Amendment and our right to bear arms. But there's other people that 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 are hunters and think that they go way too far, you know, to to the right in in protecting the you know all, the right to bear all arms. If you look at fishing and you look at it, what we could do if we got and, and again, what's the true number? Is it 40 million? Is it 50 million? But the demographics, if you, if you look at the demographics and you look, if we got 20 percent of the total number of anglers in this country to come under this umbrella, we would be one of the strongest lobbying groups in the country. If you remember the beginning of my book, I take a look at all of those numbers. And, you know, as you're saying, the, the problem is there are no rod rights issues. There's nothing that does Correct. galvanize. It's always local issues. And that makes it difficult to get, you know, New Jersey flounder fishermen to agree with uh, New Mexico trout fishermen about how things should be addressed. And, and that's, that's the issue. I mean, if, if we truly looked at this and and you know i you're not much different than i am you you love catching fish no matter what you're doing i mean who doesn't like to to keep being in a situation where you feel that that strike or you or you you know you feel that rod bound or you you see that fish come up and, and eat a, a lure right at the boat um if we all looked at that and, and we you know it took that corb love for the sport and came under one umbrella, we would all be much stronger because we could address all the issues that are out there that are going to going to continue to rise their heads that need a larger number of organized or, or of in, individuals supporting something. And, you know, at one point I was asked to testify um, in the Senate subcommittee on science uh, on harmful algae blooms. I'm not a scientist, but I'm an angler who's been exposed to harmful algae blooms his entire life. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, one of the most liberal cities in the whole nation. Lake Mendota in Madison is one of the most fertile bodies of water in the country. It had blue-green algae to the point where you couldn't stand to be next to the lake. And I'm talking 60 years ago when I was a little kid, you couldn't swim in, in Lake Mendota because of the blue-green algae, the harmful algae bloom. I've been exposed to this on, on you know, fresh water and, and uh, you know, with, with the red tide issue, you know, that's not a blue, you know, it, it's a harmful algae bloom. Obviously, we know what the causes are, um, you know, with, uh, with the trade winds and the dust from the Sahara, but it's also the nutrients that humans have put into the, the Gulf of Mexico through the, you know, the Caloosahatchee um, that, that, that cause a, a worse red tide. So they they asked me to to come and testify, and it was it was a it was a great experience. But what I found interesting was I didn't testify with reading a written statement. Is if 
you know, when you testify in front of the Senate, you have to have a written statement and then you have that you give them ahead of time and then you testify to, you know, to the committee. Most of the scientists that were there with me that day read their written statements. I didn't read my written statement because I can talk to on the water, true experience that has affected me through the years. And we need to do something about harmful algae blooms. In, in the frustrating part is, so I'm there testifying in front of this science subcommittee, and all we're trying to do is get money to study it. We're not even talking about solving the problems yet. So, you know, the, we as, a, as anglers have this great opportunity to come together and to share our collective experience on the water and our love for the sport in a manner with our legislators that will allow them to understand how important angling is to our culture. And I think that that's something that we've, got to, we've all got to look at here real closely in the, in the years to come, because we're going we're gonna to have some challenges. There's no doubt in my mind we are. Absolutely. And one of the things I love about that testimony, uh, I've read the written version of it, is that you are able to stretch that from lakes in Wisconsin to Florida's uh, algae blooms and to be able to say this isn't just a localized problem. So with that kind of stretch, let me ask you, right, you're a Wisconsin guy, you got deep roots in the walleye world, uh, but you've uh, transitioned into a pretty dedicated saltwater guy too. Uh, what, what drives that move for so many freshwater anglers to move to saltwater? I have to tell you, I was talking to Bill Dance about this a while back. And he said that, you know, because he did the same thing. He's gone from bass to saltwater. And he mm -hmm. said, you don't see it go the other way as often. So uh, that's correct. So what is it that gets you guys, get you walleye guys out here uh, chasing uh, redfish and snook? Well, it, uh, it has to do with love of fishing and that, that adrenaline rush when you get a, uh, mid twenties to low thirties red hit a swim bait, uh, in a foot of water and, uh, hear that real scream. You, you don't, you don't get that in freshwater with the exception of something that I did grow up doing, which is fishing salmon on the great lakes. I mean, I caught many, many 20 plus pound salmon in my life. So it's not that I like to pull on big fish necessarily, but I just I love the, the challenge. I love the, the fact that they, they don't quit. They, they are some of the strongest fish that swim in you know, the world. Um, and then you, know, you go to a snook that is kind of a combination between a walleye uh, on steroids at times, you know, it actually looks a lot like a walleye. I mean, if you put teeth in its mouth and, you know, then the gill plates obviously can cut you pretty bad on both of them. Um, snook fight a, a little harder. You know, people say walleye don't, don't fight. You put a walleye in 80 degree water, I'll guarantee you, you're in for a 10 pound walleye, you're in for a fight. But, Do you transfer any of your walleye strategies into saltwater strategies? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we, we, you know, I do a lot of things that, that most saltwater anglers don't do. Um, you know, I, I fish a lot of current seams. 
for for these snook and reds. Um, I, I look for current. That's a walleye thing. Um, where there's current, you know, in, in, in salt water, obviously, current changes four times a day in most most areas, and uh, it uh, it's critical to the to the ecosystem. But I absolutely use techniques. I mean, I, I catch a lot of the snook and reds I catch in a little deeper water than other people do. I'm using, um, I mean, I'm using Garmin LiveScope now um, effectively and seeing fish that other people would never see, you know, especially down here in the Everglades. We have a lot of cloudy water and, you know, I can, I can see sight fish with electronics. People look at my boat when I've got a bow mount or a bow mounted uh, electronics unit at like I'm nuts because, you know, they just drop their lure over the side and oh, that's 18 inches deep here. Um, you know, I'm using it to, to find fish and we find, and when those fish drop off that shallow water flat, they go somewhere. I can find them with the electronics. And uh, quite frankly, it's, you know, it's a learning experience and I'm getting better at it. Got a lot to learn yet, but, and it's it's a lot of fun. I'll tell you that. So, so two questions from that. The first is because you're talking about your boat. Um, you've been a dedicated uh, Ranger boat follower, not just because your Ranger has been your pro sponsor for a long time, but you've also I've heard you talk about how great Ranger boats are. But I know that you recently bought a new boat, an aluminum hull from our mutual friend at Miller Miller's Boating in Ocala, Florida. I did. Um, what's what's the logic behind your new boat and what's the plan? Well, I was challenged by an individual that owned a condo down here where I, I am in, uh, in Everglades City numerous years ago. Um, he told me at one point that there is no one boat that will do everything for down here meaning being able to go to the outside and be able to fish skinny water. And I believe that I now have found the boat that will do everything. So I've got a 22 foot tunnel hull, 72 inches wide, 22 feet long, draws, doesn't weigh a lot, so it draws very little water. It's a tunnel hull, so it will run through little to no water. And um, got a 200 Yamaha on the back of it, and I, on the nice days, I can go offshore and go fish some of the, the wrecks um, that are in our area down here and uh, feel comfortable that I'm going to get back safely. And I can go in the fish eight inches of water because it floats in eight inches of water. So um, it, it's the right tool. And that's the, that's the key. You know, you've got to have all a boat does is keep you dry. You got to be able to to get to where you want to go and be able to get to the fish you want to catch using that boat. And I and I think that this boat's going to work really well. I like it I, so far. So I hear you talking about that about your electronics and these walleye strategies. Any uh, FW FLW redfish tour plans in the future? Of, no, uh... <laughs> no. I, I mean, I can tell you on on that. I shouldn't say no. Um, I may do it at some point. I did fish as a, as a coin angler one time in, in one of the events and had a great time. Um, as I learn more, I, I might consider it. But, you know, I'm to the point in my, in my career and my life where I just love to go fishing. And I, you know, doing it for fun is, uh, is 
probably more gratifying on you know those days that you that you have that you don't you will never forget where you get numerous you know 30 plus inch snook in one day um with some good friends and you know a lot of other fish i, I enjoy that more now than than trying to go cash a check at an event so you know i, I think i'm going to do more of that i'm also and i don't think you know this necessarily but i'm kind of addicted to fishing tarpon with artificial lures um i have no desire to catch a tarpon with live bait or white bait none um, but i do get a real kick out of getting them to to eat a five inch uh big bike bait uh, fluke type lure um and i'm pretty good at getting them to do it i mean it's one of those things that and you you've fished tarpon enough to know that there aren't many things in the world that are more exciting than to get a you know, hundred pound plus tarpon to eat an artificial lure at 30, 40 feet from the boat and, you know, then try to try to touch the leader. I mean, again, I don't care if I ever land one, if I touch the leader, that's great. Um, quite frankly, I like to have them jump a couple times, get some good video and let's go get the next one. So yeah, it's right there, uh, right there with you on that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a piece for Florida Sportsman on catching tarpon on plastics. So I'm, it's it's addicting, and it's gonna the, the seasons upon us here in about three weeks. They'll start to show up in big numbers by me, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, it, especially with that boat. I can get to where I need to to go and follow them around. Stillness. So as we do on the Minute Fishing Fishing Professor show to wrap up this wonderful conversation um, and, you know, just in what we've talked about today, you've talked about bass and walleye and salmon and, uh, you know, a lot of freshwater focus and you've talked about redfish and snook and tarpon and saltwater focus. So as we ask everyone who comes on the show, what's the grail fish? What's out there for you that you still want? What's that, that, that quest fish? You might you might find this somewhat interesting given I just talked about you know 100 150 pound tarpon on plastics. So I the the fish I really want more than anything right now is an eight pound smallmouth bass. Um, where I live, they swim. Um, I, you know where I live in in Wisconsin, up in in Door County, in Green Bay. Um, I've come close. I've, six and three quarters, you know, a couple times, but an eight pound smallmouth is, uh, is one that I, I really, really want. And so I'm going to try real hard this year to at the right time. There's a, there's a magic week or so there that you can, you can put one of those in the boat. And, you know, once I get that, then I have reset my sights to something else. But, uh, right now an eight pound smallmouth is kind of the goal. Excellent. Yeah. And there's always another grail fish out there once you get there one. Is. So that's excellent. Well, thanks, Pat. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, thanks for the great conversation. I appreciate you being on the show. And um, as always, uh, everybody else, fish on. Thanks, Sid. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, them barking dogs are telling us it's time to take a break, a bourbon break. 
But today, we're going to be a bit generous in our definition of a bourbon break and take a whiskey break, because today, I want to talk about 10 Cup, which is an American whiskey, not a bourbon. Now, remember that in order for a whiskey to be a bourbon, it has to have a mash bill that is 51% to 79% corn. A mash bill of 80% or more legally makes the whiskey a corn whiskey, not a bourbon. Remember, too, that in order for it to be distinguished as a Kentucky straight bourbon, the spirit has to age for at least one year in oak barrels in Kentucky. Well, Tin Cup's mash bill has a corn count of 64%, but this is really a blended whiskey that mixes a bourbon of 64% corn, 32% rye, and 4% malted barley with a single malt whiskey that is 100% malted barley. So it's a blend, not a bourbon. Plus, Tin Cup is distilled in Tin Cup, Colorado using Rocky Mountain water. Now, if you've been listening to the bourbon breaks, you know that I love the origin stories for bourbons and whiskeys that I talk about on the bourbon break. And Ten Cup has got a great origin story. But before I get to the Ten Cup origin story, I have to tell you my Ten Cup origin story, especially since the very term origin story has come into popular use through comic books. You see, while everyone and everything has a kind of origin story, though most being at some random selected moment, like the origin story of a styrofoam cup, is likely to begin with the combining of chemicals to make the styrofoam, not with the geological or pre-geological histories of how those chemicals were formed, the idea of origin stories have been popularized by comics. And it was really through comics that I came to know Ten Cup, well, sort of through comics. You see, I've been a fan of Marvel comics since the early 1980s, and I used to read tons of them. So when Marvel really expanded the MCU, not just to the movies, but to the television shows, I started watching all of them, and I instantly became a fan of the Jessica Jones Netflix series based on the comic books developed by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatiss. Now, in the show, Jessica's an alcoholic, or at least she's a drinker who drinks like her superpower is drinking. And throughout the first season of the show, she pounds bottles of tin cup like a non-superhero would a bottle of water or Gatorade. Now, for whatever reason, I often get enticed when I see characters in movies or shows stay true to one brand of drink throughout the movie or throughout the series. For example, I'm a huge fan of Band of Brothers, which coincidentally came out in 2001, the same year that Jessica Jones made her first appearance in Alias Number 1 for Marvel's Max series, which was designed for more adult readers. Anyway, in Band of Brothers, the character Louis Nixon, played by Ron Livingston, wanders through Europe in World War II seeking out bottles of VAT-69. So by the third or fourth episode, I had to know if VAT-69 was a real thing or something that the show made up. So I called around, and sure enough, VAT-69 was real. So I went to my local liquor store on my birthday, and I asked for a bottle. The guy at the store wanted to know why in the hell would I want VAT-69 and told me it was terrible. It came in a plastic bottle, not glass, and was about the foulest scotch whiskey I've ever tasted. 20 years later, I still have that plastic bottle, and it's nearly full, and not something I ever reached for when I wanted to drink. So Band of Brothers really let me down. Anyway, after several episodes of watching Jessica chug 10 cup, I had to find it and easily did, and I love it. It's fantastic. I probably have 40 of those cool little 10 cups that come on top of the bottle as emblematic of how much I've had and how much I like it. 
So that's my 10 cup origin story. But the actual 10 cup origin story is pretty cool too. So the name 10 cup is named for the town of 10 cup, Colorado on the Western side of the Rocky mountains, which was an old mining town and 10 cup, Colorado was named after the 10 cups that the miners used to drink from. And yes, every bottle of 10 cup American whiskey is capped with a small 10 cup that holds one and a half ounces. So the typical measure for a single shot in the U S Anyway, Jess Graber, the founder of 10 Cup, had been a distiller since 1972 and wanted to make a great whiskey to honor the miners and settlers of Colorado. So in 2014, he introduced 10 Cup American Whiskey. The entire ethos of 10 Cup revolves around the image of Colorado and the Rocky Mountains. But here's the thing. 10 Cup isn't really distilled in Colorado. It's made in Indiana and its grains come from the Midwest. Once distilled, the whiskey is shipped to Colorado and cut with local Rocky Mountain water and then bottled by Stranahan's Colorado Whiskey, the distillers of Stranahan's Rocky Mountain Single Malt Whiskies, a distiller that Graber created in partnership with George Stranahan in 2004, which is its own interesting story because in 1998, Graver was a volunteer firefighter who met Stranahan when he was helping put out a fire in Stranahan's barn and they ended up talking whiskey. Stranahan had been the owner of a brewery and knew the alcohol business. Stranahan is now owned by Proximo, which is owned by Bessel, the giant Mexican alcohol conglomerate that owns brands like Jose Cuervo. Anyway, like I said, I like 10 Cup a lot, and I usually have a bottle or two on hand. And yes, like I said, it's a blended whiskey that brings together a high rye bourbon and a little bit of single malt whiskey. Both the bourbon and the single malt are aged in chart, chart number three, char three barrels. Now, I suppose I should explain barrel chars because it's kind of neat. The basic idea is that the more a distiller chars the inside of a barrel of whiskey, that will age different flavors that you're going to get. So the more charred, the more charred flavor and the darker the color whiskey. There are really four levels of charring, though none of this is official or consistent among distillers. A barrel charred to level one is a barrel that the inside has been burned for 15 seconds. Char two is 30 seconds. Charge three, char three is 35 seconds to 45 seconds. And char four is, 40, is 55 seconds. Anyway, distillers char barrels to get the wood ready for the aging process. The heat of char changes the chemical structure of the wood that will come in closest contact with the whiskey. The char also creates swelling and pockets in the wood's surface, allowing for greater surface area of contact between the wood and the whiskey. That heat also draws the sugars stored in the wood toward the charred part, which then comes into contact with the whiskey, and of course, the char adds color to the whiskey. Remember that the whiskey that comes right off the still is clear. So enough of that diversion. Yeah, 10 cup is aged in char number three barrels. So pretty well charred and the 10 cup American whiskey has got great coloration, a kind of light caramel, but not so light as to suggest butterscotch. That caramel color alludes to the nose of the whiskey, which comes off right away as caramel with a hint of citrus and spice and that rye heavy uh, is very noticeable, but it's also a light nose, subtle, not overpowering. What I'd call a light nose and nothing too strong. The palate opens with a pretty adamant statement about the importance of rye in this blend. Rye is the dominant flavor, which I find very pleasant. But like the nose, 10 cup American whiskey maintains a kind of lightness in both the body of the whiskey in your mouth and in its flavor. It's very pleasant. 
but certainly not complex or complicated. I think that maybe the lightness is probably in part the result of a lower proof too. 10 cup American whiskey comes in at 84 proof. So it's a friendly whiskey, a kind of, you know, the door is always open to neighbors kind of whiskey. The high rye content is certainly evident in this blend, but there's also something that seems to keep the rye in check a little. And I'm wondering if that's because the small amount of single malt in the blend. The finish really isn't worth talking about because there isn't much of one. There's a little rise in the spice flavor at the end, but not much of an increase. The overall palate spectrum is kind of consistent, not changing much throughout, and that's not a bad thing by any stretch. It's part of what makes Tin Cup reliable. In fact, the more I think about it, reliable may be the best word I have for describing Tin Cup. And let's face it too, with a price point of 30 bucks, this lighter, reliable flavor and really cool bottle design with the Tin Cup shot glass this is a whiskey that will appeal to a broad spectrum of dinker, drinkers, from the duly initiated to the teenager waiting to break out of the Mad Dog 2020 gutter. It may come across as thin to bourbon connoisseurs, but connoisseurs don't have to be bourbon snobs. Tin Cup is an appealing pour. So those are a few, and perhaps too many, thoughts about Tin Cup American whiskey. Hey, before we go, as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I reviewed or purchased out of pocket in my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, Dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasy. Speaking of which, let me give a quick shout-out shout out to the Hurricane in Pasigrill, Florida. Certainly one of the best places on Florida's West Coast to eat a grouper sandwich and drink hurricanes. And since we're talking Florida, here's to the heat. Not the heat that brings down barns and shanties, but the heat that brings down the bras and panties. As always, if you've got a comment about this week's Bourbon Break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. And that's it for the Bourbon Break this week. Let's get off the bar and on the water. All right, it is time for another Fishing Professor Top 10 list. And this week, I'm going to be popping off about my top 10 favorite poppers for inshore fishing. And as always, I do have some caveats for today's top 10. First, I'm only looking at poppers for inshore fishing. So no poppers with tuna in mind, say. And as a parameter marker, then let's just say no poppers over seven inches. Even though there are a lot of good tuna and mahi poppers out there in the five, six, seven inch range, I'm going to be thinking inshore here. So some smaller poppers. And yeah, some of the poppers I'm looking at do have versions in the six or seven inch lengths. But because they have shorter versions in the four and five inch range, we'll keep them in the list. And yes, I know that this sounds like a lot of pointless technicalities that really don't mean much, but I have to give myself some framework here. Otherwise, we'd have bedlam, chaos, human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Okay, I'm also not going to address popper fly patterns either. Even though working poppers on the fly line is a blast for inshore species like treckled, speckled trout or stripers. And I have tied a lot of popper flies, but that's not part of this top 10. 
So with those caveats in mind, and without further ado, do, do, da, 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 here are the fishing professors, top 10 inshore poppers. Kicking us off in the number 10 slot, I'm going with the Cordell Pencil Popper. The Pencil Popper is a classic lure. It's been around for a long time, and it's about as synonymous with surf casting lures for any striper or angler out there. It's also certainly made its mark as a bluefish popper and a false albacore popper. I love the classic design of this lure. It's long, thin body makes it one of the farthest casting lures out there. And the weight set in the tail of the popper pulls the tail section down into the water, giving the lure a bobbing action that when popped creates great surface action. Okay, at number nine, let's go with a Bass Pro house brand lure, the Offshore Angler Laser Eyes Saltwater Series Magnum Z Pop. Good God, who is doing the product naming over at Bass Pro Shops? All right, measuring in at four and a half inches, the Laser Eye Magnum Z-Pop comes in six color variations. It's got a wide mouth face that does a solid job of throwing water when popped. It's got great holographic eyes and a nice gill plate visual design. The body design, if familiar, as it's kind of familiar as it echoes many classic Bass Popper designs. But the saltwater hardware on the Z-Pop makes this an adept saltwater popper. All right, at number eight, I'm going with Oceanborn Flying Popper. Now, they do have a six and a half inch version of this lure, the 170, but it's their three and three quarter inch, the 100, and the five and three eighths inch version, the 140, that really get my attention for inshore fishing. This is a narrow-necked popper that, because of its tight lines, is a great distance-casting lure. The Flying Popper is designed by master lure designer Patrick Sibylle. It's got a unique rib construction on the belly side of that lure that encourages airflow on the cast, increasing casting distances. Those ribs also pull air into the popping action, adding to the bubble trail and commotion of the lure. The lure also has what you call kind of a wing that helps keep the lure in the air on the cast. It's a popper that I've come to like because unlike a lot of other poppers that perform only in calm water and then be kind of useless, become useless in rougher water, the flying popper does really well in a chop. I also like that there are three versions of this popper, one designed as a floating popper, one as a sinking popper, and then one designed for super long distances. The distinction between these three versions lies in the internal weighting of the lures with, of the, say, within the same length say the five and three eighths inch, ver inch version. The floating popper weighs in at two ounces, the sinking at two and three quarter ounces, and the super long distance one at four ounces. Uh, they come in eight color patterns. All right, at number seven, I'm going with Tsunami's Talking Popper Lures. To be clear, the Talking Popper comes in three lengths, a five inch, six inch, and a seven inch. But even the, these tend to be leaning outside of my bigger popper parameters. We'll pretend we're only talking about the five inch popper and maybe a little bit about the six inch, but we're pretending the seven incher doesn't exist. So don't make eye contact with it. Walk away. The talking popper is loaded with weight transfer balls that clack around on the interior of the lure when you work it, adding some great audio attractants to its popping sound. But what makes these shifting weights more important is that they keep the lure balanced on casts. So you don't end up with a lure that tumbles through the air when it's cast. That helps prevent the lure from getting wrapped up in the line on the cast too. I get so damn frustrated when I make a long cast or a precision, precision cast and the damn lure is wrapped in the line and it runs sideways or backwards or just spins around on the retrieve. The shifting weights on this lure though of the talking popper help prevent that. Okay, coming in at number six is Nomad Designs Chug Norris. And yes, there are six and seven inch versions of the Chug Norris, 
but it's the two inch, the three and three quarter inch and the four and three quarter inch versions that I use inshore. And yeah, we got to admit it too that Chug Norris is a freaking awesome lure name. Hey, Bass Pro, pay attention. Just think of the marketing, marketing possibilities. God created the oceans and the fishes, and then Chug Norris took over. Chug Norris has never missed a fish, never. Chug Norris can drown a fish, and so on. But what's really the thing that keeps me attentive to the Chug Norris popper is the way that it hangs in the water and then clings to it, like Kung Fu grip or Chug Norris grip. And what I mean by that is that with a lot of poppers, when you pop the lure, the lure will pop out of the water and skid across the surface, not the Chug Norris. It stays in the water and pops, both in short burst retrieves and in long, solid pulls. And I love the broad, flat face of this lure that just throws a solid amount of water. It's available in 10 color options, but for my money, when fishing skinny water, it's the Fireball Redhead that I like. I will say, too, you should check out the Chug Norris color patterns just to see a unique take on lure colors. You haven't seen anything like these before. Each one is like a Hunter S. Thompson acid trip in a neon Skittles factory explosion. Absolutely badass colors, like licking radioactive flame jobs on a muscle car. Okay, at number five, we've got Rapala's Storming Rattle, Rattling Saltwater Chug Bug. Ugh, they're taking lessons from Bass Pro and naming stuff. So the Storm line of lures is a subset of Rapala. The Storm Rattling Saltwater Chug Bug is a great popper. It's a larger version of the Rattling Chug Bug, a popular freshwater popper. The saltwater version comes in two sizes, a three and a quarter inch and a four and three eighths inch version. I like the big profile of this lure and the great water displacement it causes when it's popped. It's also got a great rattle in it to add to the sound attractors in conjunction with the popping sound it makes in the water. I also like that Storm has rigged the saltwater chug bug with a teaser tail and a VMC perma steel hook. It comes in 10 color patterns, but I tend to fish the redhead and the metallic silver and chartreuse. All right, at number four, I'm going with the Rapala X Magnum Explode. The Explode comes in two sizes, the larger six and three quarter inches and the newer smaller five and a quarter inch. The smaller version comes in six color patterns and the larger in 10. This is a thick, almost bulbous lure design with a wide cup face that throws a lot of water when popped, like a water explosion, hence the name. It's designed to push the face down into the water when popped, maximizing the water disruption and keeping the lure down in the water rather than skittering across the surface. The one drawback, or at least a minor problem I have with the Explode, despite it's being a really solid popper that catches fish, is the price point for this lure. The five and a quarter inch version ranges from about 20 bucks up to 28 bucks, depending on where you buy it. That's pretty high end for a popper, but I can't let that affect my, affect my ranking here simply because it is a workhorse of a popper. Okay, at number three, I'm going with Hoagie's Charter Grade Popper. What I love about these poppers is their simplicity, their fundamental design, their pragmatic and efficient function as a popper. There's nothing over the top about these lures, but there doesn't need to be. They do their job like a pro. They come in two sizes, a four inch and a five and a half inch, and they come in six colors. Um, none of them are fancy, just a handful of basic classic fishing, fish catching colors. I love Hoagie's PR about this too, saying that these colors catch fish, not fishermen. They pop really well and have a kind of stuttering action that really gives off that wounded bait fish feel. They do great on juvie tarpon, snook, trout, stripers, bluefish, and just about any other inshore fish that feeds on the surface. I've had some small snappers slam them in skinny water too. Okay, in the runner-up position, 
The silver medal, the backseat driver, second fiddle, the second in command, the wingman, not quite top of the heap. I've got that awesome popper, the Uzuri 3D inshore popper. I love this little spark plug of a popper. It comes in one size, a compact but powerful two and three quarter inch popper. It's got phenomenal action when popping, and it's sort of natural walk the dog action. It comes in 13 attractive colors, and I will admit I fish the green mackerel and sardine models a lot. And I'm convinced that the chartreuse lip highlights those color schemes and really pop visually for the fish. And as always, I am a traditionalist when it comes to a classic redhead design. The Uzuri 3D inshore popper uses an internal hologram sheet to really bring out the visual and reflective qualities of the lure. It really is one of those inshore poppers that I always carry. And I've taken red, snook, trout, juvie tarpon, small snapper, ladyfish, and other skinny water fish with it. Just a great popper design. Okay, with that, we reach the top of the mountain, the champion topwater, the Duke of New York, a number one, the big man. But before Snake Plissken can meet the Duke, we got a recap for the feeble-minded, weak-memoried members of the crew. So here are one more time. Write them down this time because there's going to be a quiz. At number 10, Cordell's Pencil Popper Saltwater Inshore Topwater Bait. At nine, Offshore Angler's Laser Eye Saltwater Series Magnum Z-Pop. At eight, Ocean Born Flying Popper. At seven, Tsunami's Talking Popper Lures. At nine, Nomad Designs Chug Norris. At five, Rapala's Storms Rattling Saltwater Chug Bug. At four, Rapala X-Rap Magnum Explode. At three, Hoagie Charter Grade Popper. At two, the Yozuri 3D Inshore Popper. And with that, here it is, the Fishing Professor's number one favorite inshore popper. Shimano's Pop Orca. Now, this is a lure I fish with a lot. So if you want to learn more about it, you can check out the Inventifishing new product introduction for the Pop Orca that we filmed at iCast in 2016. And my video gear review of the Pop Orca, both are available at Inventifishing.com or on the Inventifishing YouTube channel. Now, clearly, because I've put the Pop Orca in my top three poppers, it's a lure I think very highly of. I love the unique design on this popper, really unlike any other popper out there. And it's designed with a bubble chamber that with a wide open mouth design that pushes water through the lure chamber and shoots it out of the top of the lure, creating a lot more commotion than other poppers I've used. Uh, it also leaves a really solid bubble trail. It's got through wire construction and really strong hooks, making one of my favorite poppers. It also works real easy in the water. That is, it's really user friendly and it doesn't require a lot of practice to get the action right comes in three sizes, a three and a half inch version, a four and a half version, and a five and seventh eighth version. They come rigged with two treble hooks or two modified circle hooks. There are only four color options, but the colors are carefully selected to be bite enticing colors. All in all, just one of the best poppers out there. Okay, that wraps up another Fishing Professor's Top 10. And as always, if you think I've overlooked an important inshore popper, you can email me at sid at inventifishing.com or use the comment feature of any of the platforms on which you're listening to the Rodcast. As always, if you got something you want to say, send me an email, leave me a comment, and we're popping on out. Farewell and adieu to you sweet Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. For we've just received orders for to sail for old England and hope very shortly to see you again.
Well, not see you, but I hope you'll be listening next Wednesday for the next sensational episode of the Rodcast. And let's admit it, this week's cast was pretty damn primo, too. I want to thank my good buddy, Pat and I, the walleye guy, for taking the time to be on the show, and I really want to thank him for all he does to promote recreational fishing among the younger generations and his support of professional anglers across the country. He really is one of the most vocal advocates recreational angling has, and I'm lucky to have him as a friend. I do hope you all get the chance to dive into a bottle of 10 cups soon. More importantly, I hope I get to dive into a bottle of 10 cups soon. And I hope that my guidance about inshore poppers will be of some use to you. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The mate is in the cabin. I say again, the mate is in the cabin. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give the listen when it drops. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday to help get you through the week. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor broadcast with everyone you know, except that one guy. You know who I'm talking about. Don't tell him. He's just going to be a pain in the ass about everything, so don't tell him. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing, and be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and other information. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!